I think printmakers are hooked by that often really early on. And then they tend to work in that way because it's really kind of quite addictive. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast so they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page where supporters can join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and that helps us to keep bringing you printmaking content every week. You can also get thank yous like exclusive merch, as well as access to our bonus content. Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, check out the link in the show notes to sign up and hear Tim's chat with today's guest. And if you want to save a little money and still support the show, you can sign up for a yearly subscription and get 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like their new line of professional relief inks, beginning with their flagship color, Super Graphic Black, developed with artist printer Bill Fick. Formulated with all the working properties artists demand, these light-fast inks roll out consistently, transfer beautifully, and clean up easily with soap and water. So if you want to take your practice to the next level, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Catherine Jones, a multidisciplinary artist working in Brixton. We'll talk about the holographic process, perceived in actual safety, international and domestic threats, and a crystal palace. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to throw no stones in your glass houses with Catherine Jones. Hi, Catherine. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Good, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to our chat. I was really delighted when Jenny Robinson introduced your work to me and I was really taken with it. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. Thanks very much for having me on. It's very nice to be here. It's a great podcast. Oh, I've been listening you. to a few of them. <laughs> yeah. And you're joining me from your studio in Brixton, which you said might have a little bit of authentic ambiance outside with a siren or two. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we're right next to Brixton Police Station on the on the main sort of on the main street. So there will be the odd siren. Wonderful. Um, inevitably. Yeah. It'll, it'll sound very authentic then. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, would you please introduce yourself to our print friends out there and let them know who you are, where you are, and what you do? So my name's Catherine Jones, and I'm a printmaker and mixed media artist, and I work in London, UK, and at the moment I'm in Brixton, in London, mm. um, in my studio, and um, yeah, that's it. Beautiful. I have to admit that um, one of maybe the only direct association I have with Brixton is the the Clash song, "The Guns of Brixton." So I don't know if that um, yes. has any uh, relation to contemporary Brixton or not. But that's uh, when I saw that's where you were. I always, you know, heard that little refrain going through my head. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, famously, there were the Brixton riots in the 80s. And um, Steve McQueen has actually just done three films about about the, the lead up to those mm. riots, um, which were race riots. And so there is quite a sort of heavy history there um and it's a very mixed cultural uh, culturally it's a very much mixed place and that makes it extremely interesting but obviously since then um it's become you know a little bit less mm. um bouncy <laughs> <laughs> and it's much more you know it's much more sedate and there's there's a lot there's still a lot going on culturally around here um, and yeah, it's a very lovely place to live, actually. Wonderful. Well, 
Where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? So I grew up in Herefordshire, which um, is on the border of Wales, for those of you who know um, Great Britain. Um, and, and it's very beautiful and sort of soft and um, green and lots of rain and lots of sheep. Mm. Um, and my parents, my father's an academic um, and my mum was very into art as um, a sort of a younger person. So she she was one of the first sort of editors of Art Review. Oh, wow. um, and she's so she was always very encouraging. Um, and they sent me to a Steiner school, which is a sort of alternative education um, school. Um, and also there, there was a lot of focus on on art and on creative learning. So in terms of learning about colour, um, especially using watercolour, um, I had quite a good grounding there. And I think that's fed in a lot to the way I use colour in my prints now. Um, because obviously watercolour and printmaking both rely on, you know, the white of the paper. Mm. And so the principles are this it's very similar um, in terms of building an image up. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've never heard that connection between the two media expressed uh, so explicitly like that. And it's really true, isn't it? Like that the it's not about sort of your canvas being just the only what supports the image. It actually plays a contributing role in the final piece. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I, did, I mean, that is so important, isn't it, to get those sort of strong light areas on a print, and that is, you know, it's all down to getting, you know, the least amount of ink between the print and the paper, and and that contrast between that and the dark. I do lots and lots of etching, um, but most of my work now is is collagraph, which is the same principle. It's an intaglio print again, but using slightly more sort of rough, um, basic uh, tools. So, um, you know, um, using lots of carborundum grit and and then making very smooth areas as well. Mm. Um, but I love etching and, and most of most of the stuff I did, you know, previously was etching. But as I've sort of got, you know, my, my work's got larger. I mean, fundamentally making an etching, a huge etching is always quite difficult in terms of the um, the equipment you need and, and all of that stuff. You know, whereas a carborundum print can be made to any scale and it can be cut in half and printed in two sections mm -hmm. and... And then put together again. You know, it, there's a lot more leeway. Um, yeah. 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 And it really makes sense what you're saying about having that early exposure to watercolor. Because while your works, um, they're, they're printmaking, they, they have uh, that kind of gentleness that you maybe usually see in something like Mokuhanga woodcut. In the sense that sometimes I think people associate print with this really graphic kind of hard quality with like the high contrast and the hard edges and then um, working in grayscale and your works really has a has a bit of a no, I don't know if softer touch is really the the word or the connotation like you would welcome for it, but for lack of a better word, like a um, a little bit more of that kind of gentle feel uh, that you see in something maybe more like a watercolor. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's probably more painterly. And I think recently, especially, I've been trying to introduce that more and more and also to work again onto the prints once they've been made and dried, you know, and, and introduce real brush marks into those mm. into those images. I, I really like that connection between processes. I wouldn't, I mean, I've always made prints and I love printmaking, but I'm really more interested in in the images that you can make using that that medium. You know, using you know the, the line you get from an etching, that emboss, mm -hmm. and 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 again, you know, everybody gets addicted to those things. It's it, it's an absolute. I can completely understand, you know, that thing because once you've got that embossed line or embossed image in that's intrinsic to almost to the piece of paper especially with an intaglio mm -hmm. print um yeah there's something really nice and sort of seductive about it and yeah you get that all of those textures are transferred um i almost think it's it's a, it's a bit of a shame often to see prints under glass 
Yeah. Because you, there is a certain amount that you lose through seeing them like that. And it's so exciting when you go to a collection like here in London, we have um, a really wonderful collection at the Tate and also at the V&A um, that you can go and you can, you can look at the prints in the drawers and you can handle them and you can, you know, you can see them up close, the Rembrandts and, and just all sorts of wonderful, wonderful prints um, there. So, yeah, that's really the way I prefer to view them. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like prints under glass, it's just, it's, it's our catch 22, right? Because if you want them on your walls, they need to be safe. They need to be safe from, you know, light and cooking oil smoke and um, dust and, you know, all the things, right, that can, can damage a print. But there's really nothing quite like the intimacy of just holding a print in your hand and, and seeing, as you say, the way the paper has been altered and become textural and these like very low relief sculpture marks and how that all can truly add to the finished piece in a way that when it's, when it's in its safe little box behind glass on the wall, it can still be very beautiful and very rewarding, but it, it, it does create a distance every time. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I've always been jealous of, of painters who paint in oil for that reason that, you know, you have all of that history of the brush mark, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with painters like Prunella Clough, who I really love, um, who's a British abstract painter. Um, she worked on canvases sort of for years and, and sort of built up and you could see the impasta and you could see all of these layers coming through. Whereas with a print, you often scrape away what you don't want mm-hmm. and and redo it or cut away and then and replace. And so that history kind of gets diminished a little bit, but at least seeing it, you know, in real, in real life, you know, and and without glass, you kind of get a little bit more information about the process it's gone through to become what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and yeah. I love that. Yeah. So where were you introduced to printmaking and and developed this deep relationship with it? You know what? I did an art foundation course when I was 16, 17, maybe 18. Yeah, 18. Um, at Hereford College of Art, which is a really good art college, actually, um, but fairly small in very near where my hometown where I grew up. And um, there was a technician called Roger Briggs, and he just taught me the rudiments of Collagraph and etching, and also really importantly, taught me how to clean up, mm-hmm. which sounds ridiculous <laughs> and sounds like a sort of, you know, an extra thing. But he taught me how to clean up, which meant that I didn't see printmaking as some onerous task that had to be, you know, where you had to really think about whether it was worth getting all these inks out and 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 uh-huh. doing it. He he showed me how to uh, to clean up really really easily, so that just was never a problem. And I think you know it, he was great for lots of different reasons. Classic grumpy technician, um, uh, sadly no longer with us. But he um, he was yeah. I think really fundamentally he was great. And then there have been obviously several tutors since then in art colleges um, in London and and other and my contemporaries. That, you know that. That, that's always been a drive as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's really wonderful to hear the way you talk about printmaking as well, because I can tell that you're an artist who really appreciates it for the unique qualities that it can bring to a finished work. And this is a theme that comes up a few times in the podcast, talking to people about the, the misconception that people have that the only reason why you'd make a print is because you would make a painting, but you want more than one. I always love when an artist can speak to the way an etching makes a line where it becomes a part of the paper in a way that there's no other process that will do that. And then you get to interact with that line in a completely different way than you would if it was made with a uh, a pen on paper or uh, a or oil paint or anything like that that it yeah. it really brings its own voice and at which point you can then add other voices to create the finished look that you want and it doesn't necessarily have to come down just to the fact that you can pull an addition of 10 uh there's so much more yeah. that printmaking does yeah. and it sounds like you yeah really understand that and, and celebrate print for its ability to do that definitely i mean it it gives you things that no other no other technique 
can give you and that i think people printmakers get that sort of are are hooked by that often really early on and then they tend to work in that way because it's really kind of quite addictive um but i do think that printmaking is is having a sort of in in you know in london anyway i'm feeling like printmaking there's a lot of misunderstanding still around it and that will always be the case obviously because there's so many different forms of printmaking and it's a complex thing to get your head around much more complex than putting a brush on you know on a piece of paper or a pen Mm. or drawing it you know with a pen on a piece of paper yeah obviously there are other stages but I think it's so important I do quite a lot of teaching and I think it is so important to introduce people to printmaking um, and just to just as a way of explaining as well that uh, what an original print is you know that it's not a G clay um, of a of a painting that has been made by you know like you said and and making a copy of something that's already made in another format or another medium is is sort of irrelevant to to fine art printmaking Mm. and completely you know I, I like very much like digital printmaking and I think that's fantastic as it as you know if you're working on a print as a print then it should, you know, work in whatever format or whatever media you like. But it's that sort of fundamental understanding about, you know, the conception of something being in a particular medium. So if something's conceived as a digital print, then of course it should be printed digitally. Yeah, fine. No, I I think that that is a really important distinction that I haven't actually heard anyone say before so directly because it's it's really that part of the reason why I think people turn their nose up at Giclée reproductions and maybe they didn't even know it is as you say it wasn't intended to be in that form so it takes something away from the artist's intent yeah. and from the authenticity of the image truly and and absolutely so, yeah yeah and I've seen beautiful digital prints I really have but it's probably for the very reason that when the artist set out to create something they were thinking of what can I do in this medium that really makes this medium sing that's really going to fulfill the strengths of this medium and then when you see it it's like well okay well yeah. that's quite nice yeah 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 absolutely yeah. absolutely so to chat a little bit more about your work specifically. I know that it speaks to this sort of tension between safety and danger and perceived security and vulnerability. And I just would find this topic incredibly fascinating for a bunch of reasons. Um, But I'm hoping that you could speak to what brought you to that directly and, and how you go about exploring that through the particular images that you use. So I think what's happened is that it's always been there but I've just recognized it over the years and you know when you have to write write about your work you you realize that the same topics come up over and over again and um but right you know as when I was doing my degree and a little bit after that um I was a fellow in printmaking at um the City and Guilds of London Art School which has a wonderful sort of toxic etching room and um, proper nitric and everything like that, um, very old style. Mm. And I was working on a series of images of shelters, and they, so they were really, you know, I suppose based on something that was in the air at the time politically. We were going into the Iraq War, and there were there was a lot of rhetoric around about what would be safe for our country for us mm. for the world you know what 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 everybody was planning to do to keep us safe from these these perceived dangers which were very real but weren't necessarily being dealt with in the in the right way um and i was just conscious of that as i was making these these kind of little metaphors i suppose for that fragil the fragility of safety and what our perceptions are of a safe space and they turned out looking very much like um 
like greenhouses or like glass houses, mm. which was a completely fitting metaphor for visual metaphor for that stage um, and hasn't stopped being fitting for that that sort of idea ever since. So that idea of something that's very welcoming, looking warm, safe um, and and at the same time very fragile, vulnerable and insecure. So it has kind of continued. So the work that I've continued to do, whether it's, you know, ma- you know made using these motifs or not, um, the latest work has been about um, flowers and gardens and um, clouds, a lot of sort of very sort of transient things. Um, but it's always come back to those core things, those core elements, um, questioning safety, security and what it is. And how, you know, how vulnerable we really are and how grateful we should be really for, for, for the now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if the, if the last 18 months has, has taught us nothing, hey? Like it's, it's yeah. really, um, you know, thinking about the worries yeah. that took up most of my mind two years ago compared to the worries that take up most of my worried mind now, it's completely different. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think like all of us, you worry about maybe getting sick or your family getting sick in a general sort of way. Like, wouldn't that be terrible if I suddenly got a call and, you know, someone has, has gotten very ill unexpectedly? But you also have yeah. that, um, many people, I think, walk around with that albeit false, but nonetheless sense of security that that doesn't happen to my family, that happens to other people. That's just yep, something you absolutely. read about. Oh, sure, that yeah. happened to my friend, but it won't happen to me. And it's it's truly what kind of makes it so you can get up in the morning, you know, is that if you I think yeah. if you really yeah. woke up fully knowing how fragile things were, it would be very, very difficult to put your feet to the ground and, and walk out the door, truly, yeah. I think, I think the other thing, conversely i think the other thing that you know lockdown taught us was that the earth is pretty incredible you know that Mm. people were really looking at the the world directly outside their front door and and how things were kind of springing to life a lot more i mean in 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 brixton for instance i'd never noticed the birds as much as i did Mm. during lockdown there was no cars on the road for a long time um and that there was just this regeneration of life and obviously the first lockdown i think we were coming into spring so that was happening automatically a little bit but it it was just it was quite optimistic i felt quite optimistic about how you know the 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 title of the show that i'm just about to do is the iron in the earth and i think Mm. that sort of was again reflecting on the fact that that the earth's very strong and and it it can rejuvenate and regenerate if we let it yes yeah i i had a mentor what must have been i think it was when i was in high school it was actually my martial arts sensei who said at one point wow. i think i was <laughs> I was, I was, yeah, I was taking, as taking Kung Fu as a, as a 16 year old, um, certainly a hundred percent inspired by Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, and wanting to, you know, wanting to be <laughs> strong and safe, you know? Um, and I was yeah. wearing some shirt about the environment. And I remember he said something like, no, 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 people don't want to save the earth. They want to save humans. The earth is going to be fine, you know? Mm. And it really, yeah. I remember it very clearly kind of planting the seed of, Oh, right. Like, we're really, you know, like, this is really about us. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we all suddenly disappeared, you know, what would really benefit is actually the earth. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a wise guy. Yeah. Well, it is, it's interesting, sort of speaking of the sort of elements of, of safety and danger and security. And just that little anecdote reminded me of it. I, I'm curious for how much of that you think maybe sparks your interest or certainly sparks my interest if I can, I can just speak from the eye, which is being a woman in the world and having a narrative from a very young age that your safety is your responsibility, that you are in constant mm-hmm. danger, that you are inherently a victim, like just waiting. You're basically like a, a victim waiting for a perpetrator. And that it really takes up a lot of your brain power from a young age when you're socialized female 
to be concerned about safety. Yeah, I mean, of course, that I mean, I could go on an, a big feminist rant here. <laughs> well, um, please don't let me stop you. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think some of that tenacity and I think you he- you hear it from a lot of female artists is I mean, especially as far as I know, you know, I'm not in an, in any other fields particularly. But from my perspective as a female artist, yeah, I mean, you do have to shout a little bit louder and be a bit more tenacious. And you do have to kind of, you know, you have to know those things that, you know, there are certain things that privileges that are not automatically afforded to you that you might have to fight a little bit harder for. Mm. I don't. I mean, it's it's probably held me back in lots of ways. I don't know, but I I I feel like it's also a privilege to be a a female in the art world in in our world um, as printmakers. I think it's almost something. I mean, it's always going to be there. It's almost something that gives you a bit of fight, and the fight is very hmm. good for the work. Mm, I like that. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. It's um, and it's something that I, I do know too. It 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 creates, I think, incredible bonds in the art world as well. Um, you know, when you connect with another woman who's out there, who's doing the fight, you know, it's that it's, it, it can be a really amazing experience too. And, and that's not something I would ever want to give up for sure is, is the, the sisterhood is powerful element of, of getting to yeah. be on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've done a couple of collaborations recently with, with, so one was with a sculptor, Helen Barth, who's a brilliant sculptor. And we started off the collaboration actually just having conversations. We didn't do any work for the first, you know, three or four uh, days that we'd sort of met up, three or four sessions. We talked about our shared experiences of motherhood and of being a woman and and the things that we wanted to communicate. And it was for that reason alone, it was such a fantastic thing to do. And eventually we did end up making some making a piece together, um, which was exhibited at Radley Gallery. And um, absolutely have loved the whole experience and it completely expanded the way that I thought about my work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious if we could speak to you for a, a bit this idea of using this image of the house and you said you know you kind of came across it and realized it was a really good metaphor for what you're going for in terms of of a greenhouse but it certainly shows up time and again in your work and in different ways you know in 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 the background and the foreground and I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to all the different sort of implications that a house has because it is such an interesting symbol uh, you can go all kinds of different ways with it and do you really see it as a really versatile kind of iconography or does it tend to play the same role every time it turns up in your pieces no it genuinely does always play a different role and i think i mean you can go down the first route i went down after sort of finding out that what i was making was something that looked like a glass house and people were saying what what are these glass houses and i decided to do some proper research on the earliest glass houses and how they evolved and it turned out that they were very much connected with the voyages of discovery which were um the slave routes they were they were called the voyages of discovery because you know they dis- also discovered lots of plants and and different foods and vegetables and things like that but really they were funded by the slave trade which is in a hugely mm. dark um you know, history that we've only just really started to understand. Um, And thanks to Black Lives Matter and, you know, all of those movements, I think that's the most important thing that's come out of it for me is to, to have access to all of this history that's coming out, you know, constantly now. And um, so doing that research into Joseph Paxton, who is one of the first people that, that put together this um, huge building, which was made out of glass and was a, a huge modular building called the Crystal Palace, which stood in Hyde Park during the Great Exhibition in the mid, mid-1800s. And it was something he basically originated or p- pioneered um, a lot of the glass making in you know huge sheets of glass for the mm. for the for this for this thing so 
so there but there was there was a lot of history that went before before that and he was the person that made the first domestic glass house and that was in order to encourage people to propagate um vegetables and you know fruit that that came from different countries around the world that he had brought in so um the first greenhouse domestic greenhouses were sort of made by him by you know pioneered by him and um they graduated from an a-frame to a to the standard glass house that you'd see today so that was just one little thing but then every single time um a new house appears it's normally for a completely different reason um and it's they vary so much but of, of course it's quite a universal you know, a, a dwelling or a, a shelter is is such a universal s- symbol, I suppose. Mm. So it's it's infinitely useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, yeah. It, it, there's just so many different things. I feel like you can you can take it in so many different ways to interpret, as you say, a shelter or a dwelling, because it's such a fundamental part of, you know, not even just being a human, but like being a mammal, you know, you know, whether you're, you're a mouse that hides under a leaf, you know, during a rainstorm or, um, you know, or, or, or humans who build these, these incredibly complex structures or sky high apartment buildings that you see in places like Shanghai and Beijing that are just Mm. impossibly large, you know, human holders, basically. Yeah. And, and, everyone comes with those associations as well, you know, with, Mm -hmm. with this idea of shelter and home and of a safe place. And, you know, for me, looking at your images and kind of knowing that it has to do with the sort of perceived and, um, an actual danger, you know, I took it to, and through some of your images, these ideas of the danger that takes place in the domestic and the sense that, you know, you know, Women are constantly told, you know, be careful, walk with your car keys, you know, always be alert, don't wear that skirt, don't wear heels in case you have to run. But as grim as it is, they're much more likely to be killed by their partners than by a stranger. Mm-hmm. And, and and so we're given this narrative of like, the world out there is dangerous, watch yourself, always be on guard, but it's actually inside, it's actually the most dangerous place for women statistically is in their homes. And it's the same for children as well. You get the these, you know, um, horrible stories of, of stranger danger snatchings, which of course happen, but the vast majority of physical and sexual abuse happen within a child's home. So the vulnerable people that we get told, you know, we have to protect them. This is their, uh, it's, it's our job as a society to make sure we have streetlights on the street, which yes, of course, put streetlights on the streets so people can be safe. But also we need to be honest about where is actually the dangerous places are. And that's in the shelter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, the, I mean, I haven't made any work explicitly about those themes, but um, it all feeds in. And I think that is it. It's about honesty. It's about being honest with yourself about, you know, how how safe we really are. It's it was it's not an entirely negative mm. view. It's just it's just about maintaining that balance and understanding that we're not safe in our world. You know, but we're not, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But mm. just to remember that when, you know, we're not, we're not balanced, we're not kind of completely secure at all times. And just to be, to be aware of the, of the, of the other, the rest of the, you know, of what's going on in your environment is really important too. Mm. Um, but yeah, the honesty thing is huge. Um, and, and absolutely the things that we see are only a tiny percentage of the things that really go on. Yeah, yeah. I'd love it if you could speak a bit to this way that you use really beautiful images, you know, really, obviously, you put a lot of thought into composition, into palettes, there's a wonderful balance to the images. And again, you know, you have these sort of soft markings as well to deal with sort of a a hard issue. I mean, there's very, like the safety is very personal. You won't, you won't find many things that sort of trigger big emotions in people more than safety, right? Because that's, that's mm-hmm. our fundamental uh, little fight, flight, freeze, little 
lizard brain that's deep within us is that's what it's concerned about is safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and But you're doing it with this really sort of uh, almost calming imagery at first blush. And then when you return to it, there is a bit of a sense of foreboding. And I don't know, maybe just kind of speak to your aesthetic and and how that balances out what is sort of a, a darker issue maybe so I start off by by you know well researching I mean I I, I start off by sort of doing a little bit of reading and and thinking about and writing and and this is the way it tends to go although I normally have a few projects on the go at the same time at different stages and then I will do lots and lots of these tiny little watercolors Mm. and that's to try to format or formulate images you know on paper so to try to put the ideas down in some form on paper and they are made on the scraps of paper so I I tend to work quite large with my prints and there's normally a kind of quite a hefty strip of of Somerset paper that you rip off the edge Mm. um, that's not needed and those pieces those offcuts are what I use to make the the watercolors tiny little watercolor sketches and they are not made to be shown at all they're just made to generate the first few images um and also i use quite a lot of monoprint to do the same thing just generating very very quick quite spontaneous images and when that when i've done enough of those when i've made enough of those then i kind of let the image take over a little bit so the head bit goes first and the heart bit comes later Mm -hmm. and i think as as i'm working on an individual print i'll do lots of different i mean probably you know up to 20 proofs of an image in slightly different colors or you know cutting things off putting things in um and just changing it even quite subtly um numerous times i sort of feel like nothing really nothing really good has ever or maybe very occasionally but but not very often come out of doing something straight away Mm -hmm. um i kind of have to have that 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 sort of almost quite painful process of of working through an image until it's until I really feel that it's at the stage where I want to finalize it edition it and put it away Mm, yeah Mm. and could you let us know a bit more in detail about what your research process looks like because I know particularly for younger artists and artists who are really making that transition between academic life and being working artists, I think that part is really interesting and important for them to hear how a a, a full grown-up artist really goes goes about that kind of work of, of, as you say, the research. I think, honestly, with me, I've found it really useful to follow my nose because unless you're really interested in the thing that you're researching, you can do as much reading as you like, but it won't necessarily stick. You know, it won't necessarily stay in your mind. And um, I think also just really trying to sort of find the, the, the talk to people, talk to people that, you know, might have some sort of connection to the things you're interested in, go to exhibitions, read a lot and try to to follow the recommendations that people give you and try to be really honest about your sources. I think this this happens quite a lot. I think it's possibly I was talking to a colleague of mine um, who I work with the other day and she was saying that she sort of is, is worried about the Instagram culture and I completely understand what she means about people seeing images and taking them in sort of absorbing them but not really realizing where they're coming from mm-hmm. or who they're by um, because it's such a sort of quick flick and you you end up regurgitating the things that you've seen without knowing where they're really coming from I think it's kind yeah. of try to, to try to just keep a track of the references that you're using that you're automatically that you're that you're you're really loving you know in terms of the visual visual imagery you're seeing is really important and um, it gives you a bit more of a grounding on you know where you might end up going mm-hmm. um, and what your your interest are and how to how to really research so yeah I think really using using um your you know using your peers as as a as points of 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 reference and also um always 
noting down and and referencing the people that influence you as well and being really clear about that and honest and and not trying to pretend it's all it's all your idea right right yeah yeah that's very important to say and I think for people to hear because there is in our digital age such a looseness with imagery and where it starts and where it ends up and how it ends up having one meaning and really just kind of transferring through society just through screenshots and shares you know like a like a meme truly you know where something yeah. will be just completely taken out of its context and that's you know that's what memes do right that's that's a kind of a fascinating new element of visual information and connection and it can be it can be quite funny and it can be uh, very very clever and they just sort of work their way through society you know like a little a little virus or something but to take that same looseness to something like fine art when it's not just a stock photo that even has the watercolor on it that's still there that's been screenshot that it often make up a meme but instead it's really someone's true blood sweat and tears it's not it's absolutely not the same thing even if you're interacting with them in the same space like something like instagram yeah yeah Mm. But I mean, it, I also think that Instagram, Twitter, you know, all of these things are really useful tools, you know, and if they're used in the right way, they're fantastically good for for research. If you if you follow, you know, you follow the, the initial lead and and try and dig a bit deeper into the sources that you're interested in, I think they can be um, incredible tools mm, mm-hmm. and if it's anything like you know i haven't done fine art research but i've done art history research is that when everyone is open and honest and citing their sources it can lead to really amazing things because you can find someone and then you can look at their sources and look at their sources and really follow this breadcrumb trail back to something that you would never have discovered on your own and can really open up something completely new to you that you're really excited about. And as you said, that that excitement is what makes good work and was what is so important to cultivate in your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think also it makes you understand that nothing's original you know there are always people always have always visually referenced other people that they've been influenced in and and so on and so on all the way back and yeah there's a reason why some things you know some very you know ancient things look very contemporary today it's because they're they've been influenced you know they've they've been an influence on so many people throughout history up until now Mm. so Egon Schiele is the first time I saw some of his work I could not believe it wasn't from the 21st century right I just was like this has to be a mistake like Wikipedia you know (laughs) who's playing this joke on me but because it just it it felt truly like something you could see in a gallery in Chelsea today and it's it's so interesting how as you said that nothing is original and artists are constantly referencing and working off of one another you know going back to the time before the printing press when artists would have reference books in order to be able to draw things that they'd been commissioned to that those reference books were just drawn by another artist like someone else had had looked at a dog in profile and drawn a dog in profile for that person so they could do it it's it's um yeah and I do think that artists can get hung up on that and that really put tremendous pressure on themselves that if I make something that looks anything like anything I've ever seen before, I'm not a true artist. And that's just such a a rough thing to do to yourself. Yes, it is. It's very tough. I mean, it can totally go too far the other uh, the other way as well. But, it's true, but yeah, <laughs> gotta have it. There's a fine line. There. there is, there is, and I think maybe that's yeah. why it feels sort of difficult. Is that when someone truly is ripping off someone else? <laughs> yeah, you can see it, and you can just feel it, right? You can just feel it in your bones when you see a work. What is what you're like? Oh, this person's yeah. definitely seen some this and that, and and I guess it's. It's And because it's so much more of a feeling than something you could write down and say, you know, if you do this, you're referencing Goya's Disaster of War, but if you move the line two centimeters that way, then you're just reproducing it. You know, there's no rule book for it. And so I think that does make it really difficult for artists who live in a bit of a nebulous space like that, that to just have to trust your instinct and trust, as you say, 
being honest and being honest with yourself and having a community that can kind of help guide you, I think. I want to make sure we get a chance to talk a little bit more about The Iron in the Earth, which is your upcoming exhibition. And you mentioned it in passing, but is there anything more you'd like to say about it? I mean, certainly um, where it is and when it is, is always, is always good news. Um, but also about that sort of series of work and about that way it sounds like you're using it to find some hopefulness as well. Yeah. I mean, firstly, I'd probably, yeah, I probably should mention that the place that I'm doing it is um, Rabley Gallery, which is outside of London in Marlborough in the countryside. And um, it's a very beautiful place and it's run by a lady called Meryl Ainsley and she's run a drawing centre and a print workshop there for as well as a very beautiful gallery for a long time where she's had several artists in residence and I was one of those in 2016 um, and I've kind of worked with her for quite a long time. Um, she's brought, you know, she's brought together a, a, a wonderful group of artists, a lot of which are printmakers like um, Emma Stibben and Rebecca Salter, who um, and, and Sara Lee. I mean, there's so many of them, um, and it just formed a really fantastic community around that place. Mm. It's very special. So yeah, but for the show, I'm I've made over the last two two three ish years actually. Um, I've been making work. I mean, along with, it turns out, everybody else who who's an artist and experienced lockdown have, have made work about about plants and growth and new life. And, I mean, I'm noticing Damien Hurst and David Hockney have kind of almost identical work <laughs> at the moment that's come out of exactly that. Um, but so I made, I've, I started making these pieces I mean the, the ideas for them probably came out of the residency while I was there and some of the drawings I made there um which, so it's situated on a, a huge farm in Wiltshire and you sort of have the, the the run of the farm to to go and draw in and take photographs and and experience and then you come back to the studio and you can work on the work that you've been drawing up um in the studio um using print or whatever whatever medium you want and um so some of the work that I'm showing, although it sounds, it feels kind of like a bit of a body of work, it is has been brewing for a long time, mm. and 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 other bits. There's you know there's quite a lot of it that have that's been made since the first lockdown. Um, so spring 2019 is that right? Um, 2020. God, I know. I'm, I'm years. Time has no meaning. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and. Um, then I'm I'm still working on a little bit now. I've basically I've got really obsessed with my allotment. I've, I've got a little allotment. I don't I mean I don't know if you have the same system in America, mm. but um, like a community garden kind of exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you have a little plot among a lot of other plots, and um, and I live in a flat in in London in Brixton, so it's kind of you know there there's no garden there so i get to go to this very beautiful place surrounded by nature and and other people growing things and i'm you know i've been there an awful lot recently and drawn a lot and the work has really come out of that kind of really positive feeling that i that i found there and and it's it's just sort of really I've really just drawn what I've seen, although the work has become quite distorted and you wouldn't know that it was drawing from life at uh, all. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, and they so they all they all go through the process I described earlier where and you know, I I, I make lots of watercolours, lots of sketches, and then they get made into into prints. So I make them into these intaglio prints and then slowly work them into final images. And during that process they do become completely almost completely different things. You kind of end up being led a little bit by the, the image itself and having to trust it a little bit and, mm. and see where it goes. I always like that description as a way of, of art making is, is when artists speak about the images they're making as really being collaborators in the finished project. So using words, like you said, like, let, let the image lead you a little bit, let them, let it see where it needs to go. And that, as you said, that, uh, 
that you lead, you know, leading with the head and then letting the heart kind of take over. And I think a lot of developing a practice for artists is understanding that push and pull that you're speaking to of, you know, when, when does your head need to be involved? When does your heart, when does your intuition, it's almost like, you know, learning to ride a horse or something, you know, when do you use a heavy hand? When do you use a light touch? When can you um, be firm and soft? And it just has this really wonderful sort of metaphor of, of the work creating itself, but then also you stepping into it. So yeah, thank you for de- describing the the practice that way. It was really nice to to hear. Yeah, I think also with printmaking because it has a natural rhythm. You know, you you are you do have periods where you've really just got to get down to additioning and yes. and making, and and that gives you a bit of a meditation time, sort of time to think about what's what's next or what you're doing, what you're making currently, and just having that little bit of space is really valuable I think yeah absolutely it really helps with the process of finishing something off well I feel like that is a beautiful note to start to wrap up our conversation on a little wonderful nod to to printmaking and its additioning can you please tell people where can they find you where can they get in touch I know you said earlier that that you like collaborations and people reaching out so where could people do that so um i have a website which is katherinejones.co.uk and um i work with rabbly gallery which um also is also very easy to find on the internet i think it's rabblygallery.co.uk as well um and i work with several other galleries as well but i'm on instagram as katherinejones.pp um yeah i'm not on any other social media because i find instagram is enough <laughs> it's it's more than enough yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely well thank you very much Catherine, for a lovely chat and i believe you're gonna stick around for a little bit longer and have some shop talk with tim is that correct great yeah thank you so much miranda thanks for inviting me oh, it's been it's, great it's been my pleasure I, I look forward to sharing our talk and we will definitely be in touch thank you well that's our show for this week join me again next week when my guest will be leslie Dugood of do good press you won't want to miss it this episode like all episodes was written and produced by me miranda metcalf with editing by timothy pauschak and music by joshua weber i'll see you next week <laughs>